This week on the Back Table Podcast. You've got a finite amount of time to be coached. You have a great coach here. You listen to what they're doing and all of the masters, every master in art, music, science, and athletes had coaches, had masters teaching them what to do. And I think there's something about, you know, golf. I'm supposed to be bad at golf and and I am, but I'm supposed to be because I'm a surgeon or I'm, I'm supposed to be bad at Excel and accounting, but I'm not supposed to be bad at ear surgery. And so coaching and what you're supposed to be good at is kind of problematic, isn't it? But the residents aren't supposed to be good yet, and the fellows aren't supposed to be good yet. The best trainees have that attitude that I can do better, I can be better. Welcome to the Backtable ENT Podcast. My name is Walter Coots, and I have the privilege of hosting today's episode. I am pleased to have renowned Professor David Hain as our guest today. Dr. Haynes is the Chief of Neurotology Division and Program Director of the Neurotology Fellowship at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and he has held a variety of leadership positions, including the Executive Board of the American Neurotology Society and Otology and Neurotology Incorporated. Dr. Haynes is the Endowed Director of Relationship Development in the Department of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. David has mentored many faculty and trainees throughout his career, and today we're going to focus on mentoring both for trainees and faculty. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me, Walter. Yeah, it's great to have you on Backtable ENT. Can you tell us a little bit about your practice, you know, how you started at Vanderbilt, and, and kind of tell us about your daily routine, especially maybe how you interact with trainees? Sure. I've been at Vanderbilt my entire career. I did my residency here, and my fellowship was across the street with Mike Glasscock. At that time, the otology group was a separate entity and, and a separate hospital. Since then, we've merged uh, the otology group into the department here at Vanderbilt. We've also merged the Bill Wilkerson Center into the, the medical center, and we function as a large group. My role is, as the division director means I, I train and have a, a role in the training of, of all of the residents. And of course, my role as the fellowship director in neurotology involves extensive training of the fellows. And we take one fellow per year or a complement of two fellows at any given time here. Great. So I noticed that you are a director of relationship development in your department. Tell me a little about that role. It sounds like that may have something to do with mentoring or tell me a little bit more about that. We don't have that position in my department. I don't think many people do. That, that's the brainchild of my former chair, Ron Evey. There was uh, an endowed professorship. And, you know, when he thought about naming that, for me, you know, the titles of the division director didn't seem to him to fit as well as this unique relationship development director. And I'm, I'm proud of that. At first, you know, it didn't sound very um, elegant in, in a way. You know, it wasn't the exact title that we all dreamed of. But the real meaning of that was quite important to me. I, I've had some excellent relationships with, with patients, with donors, with many of the uh, philanthropy that goes on within our department, and more importantly, our, our referring physicians, plus the residents and fellows. So I, I think it was a combination of things that have led to that unusual title and unusual naming. So that goes not only in the department, but your interactions and relationships with all kinds of entities outside the department. I mean, Vanderbilt uh, is definitely one of the top programs and has done a great job, and it sounds like you're a big part of that. So what inspired you to become an academic otologist um, and then, you know, get into mentoring, teaching, residents and fellows? Well, you know, I started my career in uh, private practice, and that was an important year for me. 
I was in Mobile, Alabama. This group was a, a very top-notch uh, group that had sent a lot of patients up to Mike Glasscock when I was the fellow there. And one of the partners reached out and said, hey, would you come and take a look at our practice here? And I came there and I, to be honest, it was a fantastic opportunity to build something from scratch. Uh, I was very happy there. I learned a lot about what referring doctors think, what it's like to be in a private office, uh, how difficult it may be to, to send patients to uh, an academic center and what patients have to go through to get to an academic center that's in another city. So that one year there was like a one-year internship into being an academic otologist in a, uh, a tertiary referral center. You know, we were small at that point. Vanderbilt was quite small. And, and when the, the one otologist here left, Jim Netterville and uh, Mike Glasscock and, and others reached out and said, hey, would you come back and would you take over this role? What really brought me back was the concept that Mike had promised, Mike Glasscock, that we, if I came back, we would merge the otology group with Vanderbilt. You know, that dream of doing that was enough to, to bring me back. It took seven years to do that, you know, but we eventually did that and, and it was well worth it. That's great. I didn't realize you were, so you're in private practice, was it one year? One year until I got the call. Yeah, if you get a call from Dr. Netterville, you're not saying no to that. And Mike Glasscock. And Mike Glasscock, and, that's right. You were like, I'm back. Sure, that offer to say, hey, you're not just going to come and join the otology group, but the two things that were the most important things that happened in your life, which was being a, a resident here at Vanderbilt and a fellow with Mike Glasscock at the otology group at a private office across the street. And then we want you to merge these two entities together. I knew nothing about how to merge two entities like that together, but we learned as we went. That's great history. I, you know, the otology groups has such an outstanding history. And then obviously you guys join and now your fellowship is top notch for sure. So congratulations. I didn't realize that you had put all that together. And I'm sure you didn't know a lot about that, but sometimes when you have to bootstrap things and learn on your own, that's probably why you're more successful with other administrative type roles now. You've kind of gone through all that. So tell me a little bit about some of the most rewarding experience from training and mentoring residents. You know, I, you moved from private practice and back to academics, and I'm sure that's something that you started quickly, especially having fellows you're working with. Tell me sort of what are your kind of rewarding experiences working with uh, trainees? Yeah, well, going back to kind of what we were talking about, so I had complete ownership into this practice here. And I began to look at, you know, having done a, a residency in a place that really was new, but doing a fellowship in a place that was very established and, and very highly thought of, I had different perspectives and then merging those entities together. You know, I studied in, and it's been a natural interest of mine to look at why certain places are great places to train and why certain places are where people want to go to, to be trained. And it was that that sort of led to my interest in mentorship and resident and fellow uh, development. You probably thought the same as, as I have, Walt. You look at a residency program, they're all five years, yet what they produce is quite different. And even when you call that down to um, you know, the fellow applicants, you know, we have, we see these 12, 15, 20 applicants, they're all top notch, yet they go off for two years. And at the end result, their training is, is quite different. And, you know, I've studied that extensively to wonder what those differences are and what we can do 
to enhance the training. And, and it's not just surgical training, it's professionalism, it's leadership. It's all of the things that it requires for you to be a leader in academic medicine. And we work really hard for that. We, we've studied other programs. We've studied successful ones. We've studied successful businesses and, uh, and military training, all of which have similar uh, goals, training people to be leaders in the area that, that they are to excel in. For the listeners, I'm the fellowship director at UT Southwestern. And, um, you know, I agree the applicants are just outstanding for neurotology. And, you know, I think most of them, we, if we do a really solid job training them and supporting them and mentoring, they're going to do outstanding. But, you know, you, you guys have had great success with your fellows. They, they have taken many leadership positions. Um, they have outstanding reputations. They're close colleagues and friends of mine, frankly. What are a few things that maybe something different you do at Vanderbilt that, you know, may or may not be done at other fellowships or training institutions? Yeah, I, I wanted to establish some of the more formal mentorship programs that we all hear about. And I'm here to tell you that I didn't do a very good job at that. Uh, Ron had asked me to, you know, we, he'd seen our fellows and faculty within neurotology really do well and had asked, can you look into a, a formal process? And I studied that and I, we tried a formal process, but it, it required early morning meetings and it felt pushed down on, on people who felt resistant to participate. And, you know, even very good mentors weren't interested in the formal process. And I think it's a lot of it is because we're, we're already small in otolaryngology. We wanted to standardize the access to mentorship because some divisions, faculty and residents were doing better perhaps than others. And how do you standardize that? So the attempt to create the formal mentorship model was probably the, the success. It got it on everyone's mind. It got the concept. It got the culture of mentorship going. We pushed that down to the division directors who are very strong. We have very strong leadership at the divisional level. We have very strong uh, leadership at the uh, chair level that is, of course, interested in, in the concept of leadership and mentorship. And they, they definitely go together. To help standardize that, we actually incorporated a, a lot of the concepts of uh, leadership and mentorship into our grand rounds. And so while we, we kind of threw out the mandatory mentorship meetings that you may have, but in the grand rounds, you know, we, we kind of did away with some of the talks of, uh, you know, malignant external otitis and, you know, uh, neck dissections and in their stead put talks on emotional intelligence and leadership and professionalism and, and things that we all actually all had a significant interest in. And so. That helped to standardize across the board and scale, if you will, the concept of mentorship for everyone. Yeah, I think being surgeons, it is hard. We've tried the same thing, having formal mentoring programs, even, you know, assigned a resident to a faculty. And, you know, a lot of times it works okay. But, you know, in reality, I think as a resident goes along, they may be interested in facial plastics, head, neck, and then they're going to sort of find someone that is their, their mentor. And I think having, you know, an environment where that is encouraged, and it sounds like given these grand round talks, it's on everybody's radar, right? And that's that's probably going to be, you know, really successful at helping uh, establish those relationships. When you had uh, speakers at grand round, were it department, faculty, did you bring in outside experts? These are always difficult topics because they're a little fuzzy, nebulous compared to if you're talking about malignotized external, right? You can talk some literature, but I, I've had a similar challenge sometimes talking about things like professionalism, mentoring, leadership. I'm curious uh, what sort of 
people you'd bring in. You have outstanding people in the department. Maybe that was it. But tell me a little about who would give those talks. So uh, if I gave a great talk on cochlear implants, four or five people would be interested, maybe a couple of the residents. And no one else really had a huge interest in that. And the attendance was poor and the interest was poor. When we broadened the scope of the topics, the interest level rose. And it was a way to sneak this training in, if you will, without the formal extra meeting. And, you know, even our secretaries were saying, can we stop this? These are just too hard to set up and people can't come in at 530 and 6 o'clock and et cetera. We um, reached out to leadership here, leaders within our organization. You know, our DIO has spoken. Kyla Terhoon gives a powerful talk. Even sometimes just having institutional leaders come in and say, just tell us what you do every day. What what are the problems that you face? What are the problems that you resolve on a daily basis? What problems will you see in the future? We've had book authors call in on Zoom, you know, and in your institution, there, there are all kinds of people that you can plug in. Somebody who's built a world-class destination center, for example, say in transplant or, you know, how did you do this and, and what barriers did you face and what barriers did you resolve and how, how did you overcome these? And I have a huge interest in, in those things because you can transfer what they've done. It doesn't have to be in your field. It can be in transplant surgery, liver transplant surgery, and take that and, and apply that to what you're doing, whether that's laryngology or otology or whatever. Yeah, I agree. I think as you get a little more senior, you've given the the cochlear implant talk, the otis externa talk, and I do think if the interest, you know, becomes more into these other topics that, you know, really are are sort of barriers throughout a lot of your days. And then, you know, I think being a, a good mentor, a good leader, have great professionals is all very important and, and something we'll learn along the rest of our careers. So let's get in the weeds a little bit about training residents and, and maybe fellows. You know, what are the challenges as a surgeon that you have training residents and fellows? We could go out private practice and then to do our thing. We get in there, operate, go home. But how about some of the challenges and how have you dealt with those challenges? You know, if, if you really look at mentorship and, and training, you know, it's all combined with leadership. Mentorship, teaching, coaching, you know, which is it? Leadership is really about helping others, right? If you're a leader of a, a military unit or if you're a coach, uh, you're coaching up the members of your team. That should be a constant focus uh, of what you are doing. It's displaying your values and your culture. Every place has a culture, and I think culture is key to training fellows and residents. If you hear of a malignant culture, and I'm, I'm always, you know, I don't want to go there. It's malignant. Like, what does that that mean? What does it really mean when someone says it's malignant? Because some some of the people coming out of a malignant culture can be well trained as a surgeon, yet they still describe that institution is malignant, but the, the culture is you know, what you do, right? It, it's who we are, you know, it's the way things are done around here. And that, that's established by the leader. And certainly um, mentorship and training should be every bit a part of that as much as patient-centeredness. And you have to be results-oriented and you have to be goal-oriented. You have to be in a mindset that we are here in academic medicine to train the next generation of surgeons, because that's who we are. That's how we achieve our goals. That's how we uh, help patients. And that's how we build destination uh, centers. So it's always first and foremost is training the residents. That's because that's who we are. That's how we build 
our program, our destination center. It's why we're in academics. We could probably do what we're doing outside of academics if that wasn't a, a part of what we do. Do you ever hear anyone say, the residents slow me down? Have you ever heard that? Oh, yeah. Why does that need to be said? It's like, of course, if you even have to articulate that, it concerns me. Can you imagine a Spanish teacher in a third grade class saying, I could do it myself, you know, or to translate this book or this sentence or how to coach someone how to do something that you do very well, a golf coach, you know, would a golf coach ever say, I can hit that golf ball better than this, this student that I'm training? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think if you're in academic medicine, you're, you're signed up for that mission. And, you know, I've always thought of it that I, I'll have a little bigger impact, you know, being a mentor to trainees um, and junior faculty and whoever else that, you know, hopefully I can do the best I can to have good leadership skills, good professionalism, you know, show them surgical technique, all these other things so that my influence hopefully can spread out. I think we all sort of like that. That's something that I think people that go into academic medicine and, and certainly train residents and fellows, they, they have that, that feeling. And, and you're right, you're, you know, you're not going to do, you know, seven cases in a day and do some record, but I think your day is going to be very rewarding, you know, in, in other ways besides just getting a bunch of cases done. No doubt. One of my goals is to train our residents and fellows to be master surgeons. And that's not an overnight thing to do. Have you ever seen uh, someone come into your program or maybe observe yeah. in another program, someone who is really not that well-trained? And that, that kind of gets back to your question and why do you look at other programs? That's not a place I would want anyone that I've ever trained to be in, right? I know, Walt, you and your program have an excellent reputation. When you walk into an operating room, you feel incredibly comfortable. You're ready to help that patient with the problem that they sought your care for. And that's a good feeling, isn't it? It's a, it's a feeling of confidence that allows you to branch off and do other things in, in an academic medical center that you may also provide uh, leadership in. But that first and foremost thing to have is that concept that you've gained surgical mastery, that you can take these problems on and you can do them and you can teach others how to be a master surgeon. That doesn't happen overnight, and it happens during the training of these fellows and residents. It's very satisfying. One of the uh, authors that I've studied extensively is someone named Anders Ericsson. And Anders Ericsson, he wrote a book. It was called Pete. And it was a, a book about analyzing experts. And as he analyzed experts, these were musicians, athletes, painters, sculptors, surgeons, medical doctors, and he said, okay, this is a master in their field. How did they get here? And it was kind of a reverse engineering. And they all have the same kind of path. And that is a well-defined goal, instituting deliberate practice, setting high levels of expectation, and then coaching with deliberate feedback. And that coaching piece, if you even look at the most famous artists, you know, they were trained by the famous artists of their day. They, there was no concept that you're born knowing how to do things. There's really no prodigy. And that was very important in Anders Ericsson's work to say that there's, there's not somebody that saw a piano and walked up there and started playing piano. We, we kind of want to think that. That's kind of in the movies and things that we want to think that that happened. Uh, even Mozart didn't do that. Mozart was heavily coached at a very, very young age. And it's in his book to describe his journey. Even the 10,000 hour rule, you've heard of that rule where you do something for 10,000 hours, you're an expert. It was somewhat 
inaccurately quoted that Anders Ericsson's 10,000 hour paper was where he looked at child prodigies in a music school. Now, when I hear child prodigies, I think of someone who had picked up a violin and started playing a concerto. And, and what he showed that even in this school of, of young children, that the average time that they had practiced to get to where they were were 10,000 hours. And the point was to show that nothing happens easily without hard work and then work that's done with coaching and with deliberate feedback. That's great. That's a nice way to tie in the 10,000 hour rule with what we do. I'd be interested what you recommend to trainees because it's a, it's a relationship that goes, you know, you're, you're the mentor, but also the, the training of the mentee, it's sort of a um, commitment on both sides. And I think it's important when you're training someone, I'm pretty insistent on doing things the way I do them, which is the way I was taught to do them, which was taught by the people two generations ago. So I think when you learn, especially surgery, maybe some clinical skills, but especially surgery, when you work with your faculty or mentor, you really need to see why are they doing it and try to learn their way to get that deliberate practice at 10,000 hours. And then once you get out, then you can make some small changes. And when you teach, then you can continue the whole process on. It's a generational knowledge. And I think that's the same, like you were mentioning, for musicians and painters and everybody else. They're learning from masters from generations ago. So I think that's something important to mention and to really stress to the trainees. Don't just try to figure it out. Let me show you how, you, how to do it. Generations have figured out how to do this. And then you can sort of build from there and then and have your own variation of that technique and train the next generation. Any thoughts on that? Is that sort of your approach when you're training someone, you, you're going to show them and, and are pretty insistent they do it a way you do it? Or do you kind of let them maybe try things a little more? Or how do you approach that? I tell them there's only one way to do things in this <laughs> operating room. That's the yeah. way I say it's going to be done. And I have a reason for that. When I say do it this way, and I'll say this is the reason for that. Now, we have, for example, nine surgeons here at Vanderbilt now that do cochlear implants. There used to be one. That was me. Now they're nine. And I know it's all done differently. Even the ones who trained under me do things differently, and I'm certainly fine with that. And we all have different techniques to train. Some of my colleagues will say, uh, you get to do one thing on this tent mastoid today. What, what do you want? You pick it, and I'm going to do the rest. Because you do have to stay on time, and there is a, you know, an expectation from the patient that that's going to happen, that all, all of these things have to be considered, not just training a residents. I tend to be not quite that precise. I, you know, I do sometimes set time. I look at the clock and say, we, we need to be done by noon. You've got 20 minutes here to continue to make progress. And I'm, I'm there. I don't run two rooms. I just don't. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but you know, I have enough partners that I don't need to be running two and three rooms. And, and, and so I, one of the reasons it's an otology, you know, you really have to be there. I mean, I've seen sort of mistakes being made while, while I'm looking through the sidearm, right? Or, or at the monitor. And what would happen if I wasn't in the room at that time too? And, and you know, and that's just my preference, but I'm actively teaching. It gives me an opportunity to teach and to really become intense and to really be mindful and intentional on the teaching that's occurring at that moment in time. And after the case, do you have like a debrief every time sometimes, or do you give the trainees feedback maybe quarterly or is it kind of organic? It just depends on the trainee. How do you normally give them feedback? You were talking about coaching. That's so important and the debriefing portion. How do you address that? That's funny. I have perhaps now, I guess, this reputation for being a mentor and, and for teaching and coaching, and, and I didn't set out for that. But also, 
I think you're maybe expecting a system that we do every time. And it's not necessarily that case. You know, I'm often running off to talk to the family, talking to the next patient, running to the ICU to see a patient, doing things in the clinic. And so it's very informal, the teaching that takes place, but it's very direct. And I'm trying to be more direct. You know, after studying Anders Ericsson's work, you know, the direct feedback is really the key. I've given this analogy of a golf coach, right? Would you go to take a golf lesson and you even sign up? The act of signing up, seeking out a coach means that you have a growth mindset. So you're, you're intentional on becoming better at what you do. When you're there, you're listening to what he or she's saying, right? You know, don't stand like this. Don't grip it like this. And you're, you're changing everything you've ever done with someone you've probably never met and may never see again because you're, you're ready to change. You're, you've decided you want to get better at something. I think sometimes our trainees and you, for example, are an expert in this field. You're, you're a Tiger Woods uh, of giving a lesson to a, a trainee, but sometimes they're resistant to that, right? I do it like this because I want to be here and I want to hold the drill like this because I like the way, you know, and I think if I could give advice to the residents, it, it's to have this concept called a growth mindset, meaning you've got a finite amount of time to be coached. You have a great coach here. You listen to what they're doing and all of the masters, every master in art, music, science, and athletes had coaches, had masters teaching them what to do. And I think there's something about, you know, golf. I'm supposed to be bad at golf and and I am, but I'm supposed to be because I'm a surgeon or I'm, I'm supposed to be bad at Excel and accounting, but I'm not supposed to be bad at ear surgery. And so coaching and what you're supposed to be good at is kind of problematic, isn't it? But the residents aren't supposed to be good yet. And the fellows aren't supposed to be good yet. The best trainees have that attitude that I can do better. I can be better. They're also very positive. You know, I think that the mentee that's very positive, very upbeat and very willing to learn and, and resilient and has a little bit of a, a grit about them are, are the best. And, and it, but it's that open mindset that, that really matters the most. No, that's a great point. I like the growth mindset that's important, you know, for the the trainees and, and we can always get better. I'm, I feel I can get better. That's a fun thing about what we do. And that's kind of like, I guess, being a golfer, we could always get better. I'm with you. I'm not a very good golfer either, <laughs> so, but I better be a good ear surgeon. But if you're had to deal with any trainees with professionalism issues, any sort of things of that sort, that can be really difficult conversations. And what would you give the audience advice if you're in that situation where you have to, you know, address maybe a professionalism issue? You know, fortunately, those are handled by our program director. And we've had very strong leadership here, Bob Snard and our APD, Priyesh. And they've, they've probably had more formal training and certainly more experience than I have. But it's so important. And you are a trainee and you're being trained in professionalism as well. And so the same kind of growth mindset towards professionalism, just like it is in, in, in surgical skill and surgical mastery, we can train that you can do better. And we have those classes and those leadership classes and those lectures at Grand Rounds, like I've said, that help with that aspect of things. And there's plenty of people in your center and in our center that are experts that we invite to come and speak and give scenarios and case scenarios. And, you know, what would you do if type of training to to the residents and fellows and to the faculty too, and to myself. And and I've, I've really enjoyed those. 
Yeah, fortunately, it's pretty rare, I think, in otolaryngology to have most of the trainees, faculty, attendings, where you want to say are pretty, I think we enjoy our job in most cases, but yeah, every now and then you may have that. And, and that is great in the, the departments. We have program directors and people that are probably have extra training can deal with those sort of things. So looking at a, a faculty mentoring, that's something starting at UT Southwestern, that's where I've been my entire career. You know, I've had mentors inside the department, outside the department. I've always enjoyed working with you. I consider you a mentor. How's mentors kind of affected you with your your career? Can you think of some scenarios where mentorship steered you the correct direction or, or helped you get to where you are today? Absolutely. You know, I, I came here as the division director, and so I didn't really have a mentor that was directly in neurotology and, and some of the sponsorship in some of our organizations were all external, right? Uh, Mike had basically retired um, two years after I came, and I didn't have anyone helping me do what I wanted to do. And I had some big goals, you know, I had some big goals to make, you know, I had a big responsibility, the Vanderbilt program, the Otology Group program, you know, I I wanted it to be the best in, in the world. And fortunately, there were people who who helped me. And I'll call out Bruce Gantz and uh, Rick Pillsbury. They had no reason to help me do what I needed to do. They were always there for advice. They put me on panels. They they put me on the ABO, got me into the organizations that mattered. And I'm very, very thankful. And I've tried to emulate them in that regard because, you know, training and mentoring your trainees, that's expected. It's not expected to uh, reach out to someone kind of floundering on their own over there. And Bruce and Pillsbury kind of recognized that that I was, you know, young and trying to do the the right thing, and and really helped me. I've also m- mentored by Jim Netterville. Jim Netterville taught me the concept of surgical mastery. Mike Glasscock taught me the concept to design an office that was one hundred and ten percent patient centered. I've had mentors here at Kyla Terhune, who she's our DIO. She and I share um, a strong interest in surgical training and surgical um, mentorship. And there's a dean here named David Rayford. And I mention him because, you know, when you think of the mentorship concept of, you know, you always think of that someone's off having coffee and, you know, um, they're walking around the campus three times per week probably interacted with David just a handful of times, but each time has been incredibly meaningful and I've learned so much from his words of wisdom. You know, sometimes I'm in his office to get advice on a course or uh, sometimes I'm in trouble and, you know, he's he's uh, getting me out of it, but it's been a rare moments. It's not this mentorship model you think of uh, that's frequently meeting, but it's the quality time that you spend with, with someone, not, not the quantity. Yeah. Again, I think, you know, being surgeons, it's really hard to have a formal mentoring program. I was involved with one at UT Southwestern recently is actually matching up with general surgery. And we had a few, you know, lunch and coffee and it was great. Um, and I think there were a lot of positive that came out of it, but it was hard to continue a long-term kind of formal relationship where you meet every three months or something like that, just because everybody gets so busy, right? We're working, you know, seven to five or six every day. And but I, I, you know, I think one thing for the audience, you know, especially the more junior people, you will be amazed on how much people want to help you. Our field, I think medicine, I think humans in general. I mean, if someone ever calls me and asks me for advice, or they, um, 
they may want help with something. I mean, that's a, a real honor. And, and, you know, I've always been more, more than happy to spend time doing that. And, and, you know, I can think of many people that have helped me along the way, including you, David, and, you know, Peter Roland hired me here. And, and a lot of people, you're not going to do this on your own, especially as, if you want to kind of go through the academic path, you want to be involved with the organization and things, you're going to have to have help along the way. And if you ask people and you're, and you show up and you seem interested, it's right there for you. So I think we all rely on, on maybe informal mentorship, you know, more than formal mentorship for sure. Sure. You know, if someone comes up to me and says, can you help me get to where I want to be in life? Right. And that's what mentorship is. Most of the time, well, when it's our level, it's people who are far along in their life, far along in very, very successful lives, you know, straight A's through high school and college and med school and they're in residencies and, and you look at their CVs, they've done all kinds of things that I've never done. And yet they're coming to you and asking you, will you help me get to the next level? And I take that very seriously. Our program culture is that, you know, not to assign necessarily a, a mentor. I'm not going to mentor the, the young men and women going into head and neck cancer, for example, but as soon as they decide they want to do neurotology, we work very hard to make sure that they're competitive because it helps us. It helps our program. They've chosen us as a, as their only place to train, right? You, you kind of think about this. These aren't just residents. These are top-notch students that say, the only place I'm going to ever train in otolaryngology is going to be at Vanderbilt, or the only place that I'll ever train and ever say that I trained and ever be from for the rest of my life will be Vanderbilt. And I take that very, very seriously. And, and I want them to succeed and I will do all the, everything it takes for that commitment to us to make that commitment to them to succeed. And you guys did a great, uh, great job of that. Um, our current Vanderbilt residents are just absolutely excellent and our, one of our former faculty members. So uh, you guys are doing something right over in Vanderbilt. So appreciate that. So I think we can kind of wrap things up. Are there any other comments you want to make, David? Anything else you can think of to leave with the audience? No, it's been great to talk about this. And one one thing, the concept of uh, work-life balance, I think I'd, I'd like to just address just for a second. And it's hard to train the best residents and knowing how, how much work that's going to take. Like I said, it, I think our job is to make the work fun, make it not malignant. Don't separate the work and life as much as it takes where, where life is good and work is bad. And what I, I like to do is make people be happy that they're working it as hard in, in a field where hard work pays off, right? Where when you come into a uh, long day in the OR, you do many things. You're, you're helping a patient. You're helping that family and uh, putting an implant in a child. You're helping their life. You're helping to train a, a resident um, for the residents that are doing these long cases and these long weeks they're acquiring a skill. And many, many of our colleagues go into work, they don't acquire a skill every day. They don't get better at something per se. And that part of work is, is really wonderful. Even when I'm leaving, I'm much older than you all. When I'm leaving, I think about what I did that day. And sometimes I'm leaving, I'm watching the, the night, you know, 11 to seven nurses coming in and I'm walking out like, what am I doing here at this time of night? And what did I miss today? But instead, I don't think of what, what I missed. I'm, I think about how lucky I am to be where I am. And I try to convey that to the residents. There are many people wanted to be right where you are right now. Many people didn't make it. And you worked very hard to be here. 
And you, you should continue to work very hard to gain that surgical mastery. A great quote that I, I saw recently was from Theodore Roosevelt, and it was, the, the best prize in life is working hard at work that's worth doing. And that's kind of what we do. And we have to sort of be cheerleaders in a way, and, and because we do have a higher calling. We do, we have wonderful jobs. We're teaching people to do what we, we do. We are uh, allowing people to uh, gain a skill and gain a mastery, and we're helping uh, families and, and people. So it, you, it's hard to get burned out if you think about those basic things that we do. What burns us out are the smaller things. Maybe most of the burnout, but you can't get burned out in, in what we do day to day in the big picture. So that, I'd just like to leave you with that. Those are great, great comments and something I think we all need to remember when we've had a rough day and you know, I think gratitude for what we do, it's pretty amazing. And then, like you say, there's people that they want to be right where we're at and, and um, shouldn't take that for granted. Like you say, a lot of mentors helped us get here. Well, uh, Dave, I know that you're, you're on Twitter. I follow you on Twitter. You always have good posts. Anywhere else people can learn more about you? What's your Twitter handle? Oh, uh, I'm not sure. I got on Twitter a few years ago. And again, you know, I'm the leader of, of my division and my Division does a lot of great things. I want people to know about it. And, and if you look at most of my tweets, it's talking about something good that's going on in our field. And I, I do this, you know, when I'm waiting on the elevator or between cases and things like that. And, and I do enjoy that because it gives me a chance to put out all the great things and promote my faculty, my residents, my students. I'm really proud of uh, all of my fellows and, and residents, but many of them have gone on to be uh, chairs and program directors and division directors and, and done great things. I'm proud of, of you, Walt, and what you've built at UT Southwestern. I, we've had residents and fellows be your, your partner and, and be your fellows. And the culture you've established there, I'm really proud of. And I think you're doing great things. I said that at, at the AOS meeting, I think, and I really meant it, that people could model their program uh, that they're trying to build after yours. I appreciate that very much. Well, we'll wrap things up. Uh, David, thank you so much for being on Backtable EMT. Hope you have a great rest of the week and talk to everybody soon. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's Version Hess and Yvonne Orvijinski. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kinnebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.